This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 33, The Battle of Kerry. city of Haran, which is just 10 miles north of Turkey's border with Syria. With it not being too far from the Euphrates River, this area of Turkey would have been comparatively fertile, and there is strong evidence of it becoming one of the earliest areas of the world to undergo a Neolithic revolution, turning to agriculture and sedentary lifestyles. The settlement of Kerry itself is very old indeed, certainly fortified by the time of the early Sumerians of southern Mesopotamia. The settlement may have been established as early as the emergence of the Halaf culture of the 7th millennium BCE. So in terms of our podcast, we are talking about the stories of volume 1 and specifically Episode 22. Tablets dating from the 3rd millennium BCE refer to the city of Kari having a marriage alliance with the kingdom of Ebla to be found in the lands of the modern country of Syria. The first major imperial movement to rule over these lands were the Akkadians, who we introduced in Volume 2 and to whom we dedicated episode 2. After the fall of the Akkadian Empire, the city came under the influence of the Neo-Sumerians. During the 2nd millennium BCE, Kari would have been an important city for travelling merchants. The Assyrian kingdom was emerging around the city of Nineveh, and merchants would have been stopping at Kari en route to the important Levantine coastline, which was controlled by the kingdom of the Yamhad at the time. However, with the emergence of the Hittite Empire in Anatolia, Kari found itself at the centre of a crossroads of cultures. Not only was this the Assyrian route to the cities such as Damascus, but it was also the Hittite route down the Euphrates. So there was some definite advantage to having control over these lands. The Mitanni kingdom emerged in lands not far from Kari, and Kari would have been a central city of the Mitanni kingdom during the kingdom's tenure. However, in the course of the Hittite destruction of the Mitanni kingdom, the city of Kari was set ablaze. The city was still on the fringes of the Hittite Empire and this remained an area of the world under fierce contest for the remainder of the Bronze Age, with the Assyrians vying for control of the city before the Hittite Empire's demise during the late Bronze Age collapse. 
It is fair to say that in the grand scheme of cities of the ancient Near East that Kerry was certainly viewed upon with a degree of importance. With the Assyrians ensuring that they were in full control of these lands after the demise of the Hittites, the city was granted certain freedoms of imperial obligations, such as providing manpower to the Assyrian army. The Assyrians would become the largest imperial power that the world had ever seen until the 7th century BCE, when it was overcome by the Medians and the Babylonians. Kerry was the city that was the last stronghold of the Assyrians, and we discussed this right at the very end of our episode about the Assyrians way back in Volume 2, specifically Episode 7. Just as a side note, we referred to the city by its local name, Haran. Median troops were garrisoned at Kerry after the conquest, but Babylonia was the major player in the aftermath of the Assyrian defeat. Kerry was certainly on the borders of the lands controlled respectively by the Medes and the Babylonians, but during the 6th century BCE, this would all be immaterial as the Achaemenid Persian ruler, King Cyrus the Great would run the Medes out of Kerry and overthrow the Babylonian Empire, making Kerry a central city of the new Achaemenid Persian Empire. So things were comparatively stable now until the 4th century BCE, where we discover the invasion of Persian lands by the Macedonian king Alexander the Great. As we already know from the story of Alexander the Great back in episode 18, he would swiftly move across Persia and eliminate the Achaemenid Empire. The Persian Empire would be split up among the Diadochi, or successors, of Alexander the Great, and it may have initially have been a man called Archesilaus, whose satrapy included Kerry. Archesilaus showed a political affiliation to the unpopular satrap of southern Mesopotamia called Perdiccas. So when Perdiccas was overthrown, Archesilaus lost his lands and Kerry would be absorbed into what would become the Antigonid kingdom. And this in turn was overthrown by the Seleucids in the 3rd century BCE. The Seleucid period was discussed in episodes 3 and then again from the Greek perspective in episodes 22 and 24. The period of Seleucid rule was tumultuous, with many different powers emerging and looking to expand their influence. One area which gained prosperity and independence was the Armenian kingdom to the north of Kari. The nearby city of Edessa was the capital city of a wider area called Osroene. And this area would also contain the city of Kari. Originally a province of the Seleucid Empire, Osroene would become a semi-autonomous kingdom during the 2nd century BCE, before an advance by the Armenians from the north would see Osroene and the remnants of a diminishing Seleucid Empire come under the influence of Armenia in around 80 BCE. By this time, the Romans had established themselves as a permanent fixture in Anatolia, so Osroene 
would have been a highly prized land. A new power had emerged in the vacuum of the Persian lands of the Seleucids and they were the Parthians. The Parthian Empire We were able to dedicate an episode to the Parthians and it was back in episode 3. When the Seleucids took control of much of the lands of the former Achaemenid Persian Empire, it would include the lands of Parthia and Bactria in the northeast of the empire. Arsacis, the leader of the Parni tribe, took control of Parthia, instigating the Arsacid dynasty of rulers that would come to rule both the Parthian Empire and the Kingdom of Armenia, among others. The Parthians would separate themselves from the Seleucids during the 2nd century BCE and this was a huge concern for the Seleucids as they would soon discover that the Parthian ambition stretched much further than independence when the Parthians invaded Mesopotamia under their king Mithridates I who would have actually have been called Merdad in Parthia. The advances of Mithridates would have left the Seleucid Empire as a reduced entity centred around the lands of the modern country of Syria. The Parthians would enter the 1st century BCE as an empire, relocating their capital city to the Mesopotamian settlement of Tessiphon, which was originally a Parthian military camp on the Tigris River. The Roman Republic Now we have spoken about and summarised the early years of the Roman Republic many times during our previous episodes and especially the battle episodes so we really don't need to go into too much depth here at the risk of repeating ourselves unnecessarily. The aspect of the Roman Republic that should interest us here is its expansion eastwards. The early years of the Roman Republic included the overthrow of its monarchy at the end of the 6th century BCE and the expansion of its area of influence while dealing with the social concerns of balancing a republic very much weighted towards conserving the wealth of the aristocracy. The Romans did what they needed to do to keep the republic united. Thanks to this, they were able to conquer lands and gain influence over other societies, creating an imperial power base. From here, the Romans were able to become the dominant force on the Italian peninsula, winning land from the Latins, the Samnites and the Etruscans. After an invasion from the Balkan peninsula by the Epirates, the Romans repelled the attack and took control of the entire Italian peninsula to prevent further attacks and to subjugate the rebellious Greek colonies in the south. The Romans would spend the rest of the 3rd century BCE at war with the Carthaginians during the Punic Wars, but they would also have to address the fact that King Philip V of Macedonia had decided to attack the Roman protectorate of Illyria by engaging with the Macedonians during the First Macedonian War. The Romans eventually defeated the Carthaginians and reached a stalemate 
with the Macedonians by the end of the 3rd century BCE. The Romans would remain involved in Balkan affairs throughout the early part of the 2nd century BCE. More and more tension existed between Rome and Macedonia and this was not good for the Macedonians given the might of the Romans. Rome would eventually conquer Macedonia and split it up to prevent a re-emergence of the power. Eventually, the entire Balkan Peninsula was completely annexed after destroying the city of Corinth in 146 BCE. Greece was now Roman. The Romans fortunately found themselves an easy stepping stone onto Asia Minor when the king Attalus III of Pergamon effectively surrendered the independence of Pergamon by leaving it to Rome in his will. Politically though, the kingdom of Pontus at the north of Anatolia would be opposed to this, so Pontus laid claim to some of the former lands of Pergamon also. It would be in the aftermath of this that a notable Pontic king came to prominence and his name was Mithridates VI. Initially, the Roman general called Sulla would campaign in Asia Minor to push Mithridates out of Anatolian lands that did not belong to him and restrict him to his home kingdom of Pontus in the first of the Mithridatic Wars. The kingdom of Pontus was supported by the kingdom of Armenia during these conflicts but ultimately it would be the Romans who would prevail with Pontus becoming absorbed into the Roman Republic and Armenia becoming a client state. Surena The Suren were a noble Parthian family and can often be called the Surena family. The name Suren exists in Armenian names to the modern day as does Surena in Iranian. General Surena, who led the Parthian army at the Battle of Kari, does not have a documented history of his childhood or early life. His alternative name is Rustaham Suren, which has been given to him as a distinguishing name. We have to rely on the writings of the Greek scribe Plutarch, who wrote about the events of this period retrospectively to give us clues about Surena as an individual. Plutarch describes Serena as the second most powerful individual in the Parthian Empire, so this would put him behind the King Herodes II. Plutarch also alludes to his stature as a Parthian citizen being high due to his family being of high standing and wealth within the empire. By his incredible abilities in dealing with conflicts firsthand, he had gained a reputation and was accompanied by huge retinue wherever he travelled, so he was like a king without actually being the king. His look would be that of a medium warrior with a painted face, which actually wasn't an impressive look according to Plutarch's account. But Plutarch is also quick to state that although he wasn't impressed by the look, that his opinion of his abilities as a commander did not reflect his opinion of the median look. Plutarch described Serena 
as a tall and fine-looking man, but was critical of his fashion. Marcus Licinius Crassus Serena's opposite number at Cary was Marcus Licinius Crassus, and we know a whole lot more about him. Crassus was born of a plebeian family who were known for their involvement in Roman politics towards the end of the 2nd century BCE, and as a young man, Crassus would affiliate himself with the famed optimate politician Sulla, serving alongside him against Sulla's rival, Gaius Marius. Crassus's father had also served under Sulla, but when the Marians gained control of Rome, Crassus's father committed suicide and Crassus himself fled to Iberia. When Sulla returned to Rome to take back power, Crassus was able to return in command of his own force, using skills honed by his time in Iberia. Both Crassus and another young commander called Pompey improved their stock during Sulla's Second Civil War, gaining a reputation for their abilities. Crassus was also noted for his intelligent oratory skills, becoming known for being able to verbally defend himself. He was also well known for his financial wealth, but did not have a reputation for being so miserly that he lacked generosity for those around him. One of Crassus's more famous episodes was covered during episode 32, where the Third Servile War was summarised. After being made a Roman praetor in 73 BCE, Crassus was asked to deal with the slave revolt, which had started as a local issue and become a huge problem within the Republic. The slave revolt was being led by a man called Spartacus, among others. During this period, we would see another side to Crassus, where he would punish indiscipline with his army by decimating his men, that is, condemning every tenth man to death at the hands of the other nine. When Pompey returned to assist with dealing with the final remnants of the slave revolt, it was said that Crassus was a little miffed by the adulation that Pompey achieved in the process, obviously believing that it was thanks to his own military command that victory was reachable in the first place. However, thanks to Crassus and Pompey's political affiliation to the Optimates, the two men continued to have a common cause and chose to work together rather than against each other, despite this contentious issue for Crassus. With the Roman Senate being in a precarious position, under threat due to the fractures in its system and the challenges being faced, a commander called Julius Caesar would promise to support Crassus and Pompey if they supported his bid to become a consul. The political alliance between the three men is called the First Triumvirate and was a means to maintain influence in numbers within a failing Senate. Despite challenges, the three men would concentrate their outward focus on the imperial influence of the Roman Republic. Caesar would campaign northwards in the lands of Gaul. Pompey would become responsible for Iberian lands, although he would not be required to be in active service there. Crassus would become responsible for the Asian lands, and therefore the management of the Roman political situation with the Armenians, Seleucids and, most importantly, the mighty Parthians. 
Prelude to the Battle When Crassus arrived in the Near East, he would set about trying to secure political alliances in the area, while the Parthian king Herodes II braced himself for a Roman offensive. Crassus's invasion of Parthia is thought by some historians to be an invasion of vanity, possibly to rival the accomplishments of his triumvirate comrade, Pompey, who Crassus may felt was unfairly given more praise than himself for his military achievements, and maybe having half an eye on Caesar's achievements in Gaul, and feeling as if he needed to keep up with his contemporaries to secure his legacy. However, it may just have been that Crassus was simply attracted by the opportunity to secure more land and wealth for the growing imperial reach of the Roman Republic and believed that the Parthians were possibly becoming too powerful and needed to be curbed. Back in the 60s BCE, Pompey had taken up the cause against the Pontics and the Armenians during the Third Mithridatic War and brought Pontus and Armenia under Roman influence, as we mentioned earlier. The Armenian king was Tigranes II, and known as Tigranes the Great. He would remain an official ally of Rome. The rump of the Seleucid Empire was now Roman Syria. As for Parthia, the king going into the 50s BCE was Phraates III, who was overthrown by his sons. One of them became Mithridates IV of Parthia and the other, Herodes II, decided that he also wanted to be the king and sought the help of Serena to achieve this. This would push Mithridates into an alliance with the Romans, making Herodes and Serena natural enemies of the Romans. Ultimately, Herodes would defeat his brother Mithridates and become the Parthian king, and this is how the Romans and Crassus could justify the cause for the battle. Crassus would be joined by his son, Publius Licinius Crassus, who had proved to be an extremely capable young commander under Julius Caesar during his campaigns in Gaul earlier in the decade. Publius took a concession of a thousand Gallic horsemen into Asia to aid with the upcoming conflict. Publius would have also been keen to cement his own reputation and legacy as a great Roman statesman and military commander in his own right. Crassus was in a strong position thanks to the allies that he had in the region who would have had reservations about the expanding Parthian Empire as much as they potentially could have about the Romans. King Herodes II would have been aware of the dangers and would have actively moved to prevent communication between Crassus and the local kingdom leaders such as King Artavasdes II of Armenia by intimidating the Armenian king. Crassus would have been eyeing a conquest of the Parthian city of Seleucia and his armed forces would have numbered around 40,000 legionary infantry with 4,000 light infantry and around 4,000 cavalry. The Parthian commander Serena wouldn't have had anything like that amount of manpower at his disposal with just 10,000 horsemen trying to prevent the Roman advance down the Euphrates River to the main Parthian cities in the south. However, if we take a closer look 
at the 10,000 horsemen of Serena's Parthian army, then we can see it was a force that would have been quite an unusual opponent for the Romans, even if the Parthians were highly outnumbered. The Parthians were still very experienced and successful campaigners, having fought their way into the lands of the Seleucid Empire, taking it over completely. Their horsemen were armed with impressive composite bows made from wood and sinew, and the horsemen would have been skilled horsemen capable of firing arrows at short range at their opponents, with it being speculated that the Parthian arrows could pierce particular types of body armour. Around a thousand of the Parthian horsemen would have been cataphracts. These cataphracts were the especially heavily armoured cavalry. No infantry was being used. Crassus had already crossed the Euphrates River into the Parthian territory of Osroene in 54 BCE, the year before the battle. During this time, King Herodes II of Parthia had been busy dealing with the civil war with his older brother Mithridates IV and attempting to isolate the Armenian king Artavastes II. Crassus had defeated some local chiefs, setting the scene for his advance the following year. In 53 BCE, Herodes II would have been very likely aware of what he was up against and when Crassus and his son advanced again, Herodes' trusted military commander, Serena, needed to have a plan if he was to stand any chance of victory in his vastly outnumbered state. The Battle of Cary The Parthians tried two different tactical approaches. Firstly, they would pay a local Arab to befriend the Romans with false local information about which course to take on their way down the Euphrates River towards the city of Seleucia. The local man would have actually led the Romans to Serena's chosen battle location to the east of the city of Cary. Secondly, Serena was careful to dress the cataphracts in such a way that their heavy armour was disguised under cloth, so that the Romans would underestimate their resilience. The journey across these arid lands wouldn't have been much fun for the Romans, who may have been dehydrated in the desert sun. As the Romans approached, Serena would have sent his disguised cataphracts towards the Romans, and Crassus would have unlikely seen any kind of war tactic like it. So Crassus would have to think quickly about how his troops should form in order to defend themselves against the Parthian cataphract advance. The traditional Roman formation would have been to have a wide front line of infantry flanked with cavalry to prevent the legions from being encircled. But with there only being a small number of Parthian cavalry to deal with, and seemingly dressed with little armour, Crassus chose to form a large rectangular box containing the entire Roman army, so it could defend all sides from this cavalry-only attack. Serena sounded the battle command, and amidst loud Parthian drumming, the Parthians erupted into a full-scale advance of its entire cavalry army. The cataphracts would cast away their cloths now to demonstrate to the Romans that they were indeed armoured 
and the Romans would close their shields into a tight defensive wall in an attempt to absorb the first wave of attack from the Parthian bow and arrows. Crassus would have taken the view that with his vastly superior numbers, that all he would need to be able to do is weather the Parthian barrage of arrows until such a time that the arrows would run out and the Parthians would become relatively defenceless, meaning that the Romans' 40,000 plus army could either pick off the Parthian horsemen or send them fleeing from the battlefield. It became apparent though that the Parthian onslaught was much more effective than Crassus may have imagined, with the effectiveness of the Parthian arrows being notable, with reports of the arrows actually piercing Roman armour. Crassus would be aware of this and felt compelled to act. He sent the Roman light cavalry out from the Roman box in order to counterbalance the Parthians. However, the Parthians soon sent the cavalry back into the Roman box and the arrows continued to hail down on the Romans, picking off more and more men. However, Crassus would have still felt confident. Even with the Parthian arrows being effective, they would surely be running out of arrows soon and the tide would turn in favour of the huge numbers of Romans. However, what Crassus would not be aware of is the fact that Serena had maybe as many as a thousand camels waiting on the outskirts of the battlefield and these camels were highly stocked up with arrows and the arrows were the one thing that was keeping the Roman army besieged in the middle of the battlefield. Much to Crassus's dismay, the Parthians were not going to run out of arrows. Now, Crassus had to do something dramatic to avoid being hemmed in by the shower of arrows, and so he would command his son's unit to advance towards the Parthians. So Publius would personally lead a charge away from the Roman box and towards the Parthians. The Parthians retreated away from Publius, who would keep up the chase. However, the Parthians were actually thinking on their feet, and when Publius's forces had become isolated from the group, the Parthian horsemen moved quickly to encircle Publius's breakaway unit and attack them with arrows. Publius realised that he was now out of control of his destiny and ordered his shield-bearer to kill him and spare him the disaster of being captured and his breakaway Roman force was destroyed. Those Parthian cavalry who'd engaged with Publius's forces took Publius's severed head and stuck it to a lance, holding it aloft and approaching the Roman box so that all of the Romans and Publius's father could see what had happened. Crassus was powerless to prevent the absolutely relentless rain of arrows on his forces, who were surrounded by fast-moving, highly skilled, mounted bowmen. By nightfall, it could have been the case that at least half of the entire Roman forces had been killed. Those Romans who survived moved away from the battlefield to the relative safety of the city of Carrie. While those too injured to move had one uncomfortable last night alive stranded on the battlefield before being unceremoniously finished off in the morning. 
aftermath. Serena had scored an amazing victory. The Romans and Crassus had not experienced warfare like this and paid the price for their lack of knowledge and potentially being too complacent. It appears that Serena's next move was to negotiate some kind of peace treaty with Crassus and so a meeting was set up where a delegation of Romans alongside Crassus would meet with Serena and his entourage. Crassus would have been thoroughly demoralised. He lost his promising young son on the battlefield. He lost half of his army. He would have had the absolute embarrassment of taking the news of his unlikely defeat back to Rome. Sources differ slightly about the exact sequence of events from here though. It does appear that negotiations between Crassus and the Romans and Serena and the Parthians did not go smoothly. Some accounts suggest that Crassus attempted to flee to the hills while others suggest that a scuffle broke out. Either way, everyone seems to agree that the result of the negotiation was the decapitation of the Roman statesman Marcus Licinius Crassus. This act would resonate throughout the Roman Republic for many years to come. Well, I'm not going to heed the story of Crassus's mouth being filled with molten gold as a means by which to mock the avarice of Crassus. I can see very little reason and justification for the Parthians to care that much about the personality of Crassus. And this is more likely to be a Roman jab at his character. Nonetheless, this was certainly the end of Crassus, one of the three members of the Triumvirate, and the disappearance from politics of this man who had been at the forefront of Roman politics for the last 20 years and was responsible for dealing with the Spartacus issue, which was a killer blow for the Triumvirate. Caesar and Pompey drifted apart, ultimately becoming military enemies due to a general paranoia about Caesar's ultimate intentions. These tensions may have arisen had Crassus survived, but Crassus's death certainly did very little to aid the situation. The very fabric of the politics of the Roman Republic would decline very quickly after this time. As for Serena, he would surely have been hailed as a Parthian hero. With this incredible victory, in vastly outnumbered circumstances, against one of the most effective war machines ever seen in the Roman army and preventing another Alexander the Great-style European conquering of Persian lands. The reaction of the Parthian king Herodes II was not to celebrate the achievements of Serena, but to fear his abilities. And in typical Parthian style for the era, Serena was executed in an act of total paranoia. That was Serena's reward for this incredible military victory. Plutarch states that Herodes II himself was ultimately executed by his own son Phraates IV, but other sources suggest that Herodes II actually retired from the throne first before dying in 37 BCE. 
the first military meeting between the Romans and the Parthians would mark centuries of tensions between these two mighty empires over these lands, and generally speaking, neither empire made any lasting significant difference to this status. Thank you once again for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast. That was the Battle of Cary, and it was the death of Marcus Licinius Crassus, quite a significant event in the first century BCE. Now, uh, there is a, a side story about the emergence of a modern phrase, the parting shot being related to the Parthian shot, and that relating to the war tactic of the Parthians, um, particularly, I think, um, during this battle as well, and, and certainly um, maybe in the way that uh, Crassus's son was uh, goaded away from the main Roman box of troops and uh, ultimately led to his death. Um, well, we covered that uh, subject in uh, episode three specifically about the Parthians, so I didn't want to go into that in, in too much depth this week. So if you want to find out more about that phrase, the Parthian shot, the parting shot, go back and listen to episode three. We're doing a lot of battle episodes now, but uh, really I think um, the focus isn't just solely on the battles. We're, we're learning more about the, the nature and the culture of the, uh, of the people involved, of the countries and nations involved, and uh, I think it's uh, it's good for bulking out the, the the narrative of this story as we go. So the the triumvirate really was based around uh, political uh, military commanders, and so their battles I think are significant parts. So and next week we're going to be talking about the Battle of Alesia, which is uh, one of Caesar's battles from the fifties BCE. So we're going to learn a whole lot more about Caesar we're going to learn a whole lot more about the Gauls so these are you know the a lot of the information within these battle episodes is very very significant in terms of our understanding of the story of what was going on in Europe in the first century BCE so I encourage you to listen to this episode next week and uh, learn a little bit more about the lands of France going into um, this period and, and certainly the where the, the Gauls it, it sort of ties together the uh, the story of the Urnfield culture and how it became uh, Gaul uh, the, the land of the Gauls and, and Gallic culture and that kind of thing so it's all it's all very significant stuff and very interesting as well if you if you really enjoy your history now obviously um, part of producing a podcast of this nature is uh, having good sources of literature to triangulate some of the information. So the internet is great and, and certainly Wikipedia is a great help because it's a, it's a good way of finding organised information. However, you are sort of in the lap of the gods a bit because you're having to trust uh, the general public um, in terms of the information that they give. So really, you, you do need to um, produce information alongside uh, trusted literature. So I was uh, fortunate enough, I went out and bought some books this week and, um, you know, uh, I was looking at the subjects such as the Germanic peoples, 
the cities of Jerusalem and Istanbul and, and they will play an important part in the story, certainly. They have done already, but also more so going forward as well. Um, authors such as Bethany Hughes, um, Simon Sebag, Montefiore um, are... You know, like there are also people who, who make documentaries on the TV, wonderful documentaries. So um, in order for me to be able to invest in such literature, I, I do ask uh, listeners if they're kind enough to make any financial contribution. And when they do, they become lifelong members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And in order to do that, you just go along to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, which you should go and have a look at anyway, regardless of whether you're going to make any kind of contribution to the podcast or not. You should go and explore the website and all the wonderful stuff that's there. And uh, But if you click on the Patreon link, you'll be able to go and access the Patreon account of the historyoftheworldpodcast.com and then um, sign up to make a monthly contribution and qualify for all of the associated rewards that we give as well. So you can get gifts and um, you, you can ask questions um, from the podcast and you can even commission your own episodes at some point when you've contributed a significant amount to the project, um, such as the bonus episodes on the House of Vassar and the Picts were commissioned by people who have made significant contributions to the podcast itself. So you can get rewards for any contribution. Um, you can donate as little as $1 a month and uh, all those little $1 a month donations really add up. So um, it's there's no shame in uh, donating a small amount. We're not all rich at the moment. It's been a difficult year for everybody. So uh, any contribution is really, really gratefully received. As always, I like to mention new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And this week, uh, we welcome Joe Frankel and Joe Haneke. Uh, so it's a week of the Joes. So we welcome those Joes into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And we thank them for their generous contribution in making this project as good as it can possibly be. Welcome in, gentlemen. Okay, let's round off with a couple of reviews. Let's see what we've got out there. What people have been writing about the History of the World podcast. Um, Kanikosko from Australia has uh, written a brilliant podcast. This is like a spoken word version of an encyclopedia of human history. Chris understands his listeners. He breaks down and explains scientific and language-based terminology and always takes us back to the previous to, um, to previous episodes to build a, the story of how we got here in the first place. You are always up to speed and aware of the human history timeline. Also, Chris has a relaxed approach and a focus of important events um, of our ever-expanding knowledge of human history. Kind regards, Nick. Uh, and then also we've got this one from Bill Duggan uh, from the United States of America. But thank you, Chris, for this podcast. Awesome podcast. Really love the depth and the linear nature. I've always been interested in history, but sometimes timelines can get confusing because so many things develop simultaneously. But you have done a great job alleviating as much of that confusion as possible. Um, Thank you uh, both to Nick and Bill there for nice reviews. Very, very nice reviews indeed. 
Um, yeah, I think um, that was one of the things. I think when you venture into a project of this nature, you are looking to see. You, you sort of it's a, it's quite a quandary working out what the best approach should be. And um, really, I think um, it does make sense to stay with a particular culture um, for for an amount of time, and then. Uh, move on to another culture. I think if you bounce from one culture to another, so if I told you what the, the Persians were doing uh, and then the following week I, t I would tell you what the Romans were doing simultaneously. Uh, the world is so diverse and disjointed, it, it just would be incredibly confusing. You you really have to sort of focus, I think, on one group of people. And so we're going to be staying with the Romans for, you know, a good, and you know, about another dozen episodes, I would imagine we've got to get through all the imperial, the like the true Roman Empire. And, um, you know, so much happened during that period as well. The, the story just gets more and more fascinating as we head towards the ultimate fracture of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, um, or, the, or the 5th century, I should say. Um, so there's so much to come, and I think it's uh, it's very important that we stay with it before we then go looking at um, the cultures of India, the cultures of China, the cultures of the Americas, which are very significant during this period as well. So I think we're, you know, we're going to be heading towards maybe a 70-episode volume, and likewise, when we get onto volume four, which will be the medieval cultures, uh, we'll be introducing other areas of the world too, and so we can look forward to another 70 episodes, um, I, I would imagine, for that period too. So there is so much to come, and yes, keeping it organised is, is a challenge, but it's a challenge I'm, I'm well up for, you know, I can't wait for it. Anyway, thank you ever so much, everyone, for listening this week. Don't forget to tune in next week. Uh, we're going to be taking a closer look at Julius Caesar and his uh, campaigns, and we're going to be taking a closer look at the French lands um, of which Julius Caesar was um, trying to take advantage of during the 50s BCE. So that's all to come next week. Um, until next week, uh, don't forget to behave yourselves, and don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, History of the World podcast. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.